Hello, I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews and commentaries about all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. Merit has the disaster-proven software you need to track people, their credentials, and licenses, along with the hours they work on scene at a disaster. Merit's solution was used extensively by first responders and emergency professionals during the tragic Surfside building collapse. The state of Florida's response to COVID-19 and at health and human service facilities nationwide, and along with thousands of other organizations using this software. For more information, visit www.merits.com slash disaster zone. Welcome to the Disaster Zone podcast. With me today is Jim Mullen, a longtime emergency manager who led the Seattle Office of Emergency Management before spending time as the Washington State Emergency Management Director and being the National Emergency Management Association, its NEMA president. And this podcast will be discussing a wide range of emergency management topics. Jim and I have known one another since I want to say about 1992, something like that. That's right. And um, welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Okay. And we both agreed before we started here that we will not run on and on. <laughs> but I'll give Jim the first opportunity to, uh, why don't you do your own brief introduction, uh, Jim, about how a temporary assignment at Seattle Office of Emergency Management turned into a decades-long career in the field. Okay, I, I had been um, the director of neighborhood planning uh, after stints in the city budget office and the uh, Seattle criminal justice planning office. I had, had become director of neighborhood planning and technical assistance, and our department, the community development, was abolished. And in the course of that, I landed in a civil service position as a management systems analyst uh, in the Department of Administrative Services, which had recently acquired um, emergency management from the fire department uh, for a variety of reasons we don't need to run on about. And um, I was in that position. Uh, I was called in one day in late August of 1992 and told that uh, for the second time in 11 months, the director of emergency management was being replaced. And uh, what I consider going down to run the emergency operations center and the emergency management uh, office at the time um, for just four months. And then they'd get me back to my safe civil service position because this was an exempt position. And of course the mortality rate of directors uh, was pretty high at that point. And, and so, so I said, sure, what's four months? And that lasted 12 years uh, in part because uh, some incidents occurred that were handled pretty well uh, by my shop. And um, I was a little jaded about the experience of uh, going through a hiring process in the city of Seattle. I thought it was kind of stilted and unfair at times. 
And so I said, I'm not going to apply for this job. I'll just go back to my civil service job, but you can appoint me. I'd love to do it, but you can appoint me. After two weeks of silence, I got a letter, a raise, and the permanent appointment, and I lasted 12 years. They 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 were tired of the process also. Yeah. So, and then uh, you ended up at state emergency management. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I, I went to this. I, I applied for the, uh, the, the, the battle of establishing an emergency management office almost from scratch um, in Seattle takes a toll. You're fighting internally all the time. You're battling for attention. You're also uh, trying to establish your credibility as an entity. And uh, over three mayoral administrations, I, it was pretty clear to me. And I think I remember talking to a number of uh, folks, including you, Eric, about it about a year before that I, my time was running down to the end. And um, I was prepared to retire from the city uh, but uh, Glenn Woodbury, our good friend uh, at, at, the, uh, at the state of Washington Emergency Management, decided to take another job. And at the urging of my staff, I applied for the job. I interviewed for it. Uh, to my shock, I was offered it. And I did that job for eight and a half years. Uh, and that's when I became associated with the National Emergency Management Association, which I still think is one of the finest professional associations I ever encountered in all my career. They're, the staff and the, 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 the whole ethos of that organization is, uh, is one of uh, public service and, um, and, and public education. And, and, and I just was, I'm honored to have been part of all of that, but I think that the 21 and a half years as a director, um, uh, you know, it, took, it takes its toll on emergency managers, but I feel very fortunate. The state director average, I believe, is less than three years. I had eight and a half. And um, Eric, as I know, you know, uh, these jobs are great, but we don't we don't own them. We rent them. Yeah. And I feel pretty good to have been able to leave on my terms in both cases. Yeah. And what you talk about for that state director job, they all have a shelf life. So you actually had a pretty long run compared to most of them. Yeah. Well, why don't we jump right in? We came up with a list of topics we wanted to chat about. So in no particular order, as they say, when announcing the candidates for best actor or whatever <laughs> is, what, what are the best kind of exercises that provide the best bang for the buck or at least the most benefit, you think? Yeah, I've, I've given that some thoughts since you broached it to me. Everyone involved in designing and participating in the exercise has to be on the same page in terms of what's being tested and what's going to be evaluated. There are different participants can have different objectives, but there shouldn't be any hidden agendas. The scenario should be realistic. Exercises, to me, are not training. They are tests of the training and the protocols and procedures that are in place. Um, the time frame for the exercise needs to be adequate to meet the exercise objectives. Tabletop exercises to me are among the most useful and are less stress-free because they're typically not media events. Therefore, the tendency to show off is um, eliminated. There's a place for those mega meetings and we'll probably talk about one in particular, um, but they have many pitfalls, not the least of which are fears of looking bad on, in an open public setting by officials. And often the entity paying for the exercise asserts too much control over the exercise environment, uh, particularly in the response mode. And finally, any exercise of any consequence 
should allow room for a thorough discussion of recovery issues from because this often requires the involvement of different actors. And so often the response exercise kind of morphs into a recovery and then everyone looks around and goes away because the people who would be involved in the response of an, to an exercise are not the people who necessarily lead and manage and direct and uh, have a, a role in succeeding the success or failure uh, of recovery. Recovery is a, is a completely different animal and should be as robustly exercised as, as response is. Yeah. And, you know, just look at um, Syria today. I mean, they're probably uh, I don't know, 10, 12 days in at the point we're recording this. And yeah, this will be a couple of weeks out here when it airs. But, uh, you know, that's the response that's going ongoing. But think about how long that recovery is going to it's going to be decades for the people mm-hmm. impacted by that, unfortunately. So um, you're right, is different players and um, different skills actually are needed, especially here in the United States, I think. Yeah, I, I will just add that. Um... I don't think that lesson's been learned. I mean, we had that experience in Top Off. We might might talk about, but but I was in an exercise about three or four years ago in the Midwest, and when they went to recovery, the police they said, "Oh yeah, we've got to do a recovery." And the police and fire and health officials that were there really weren't. They couldn't really address the, the in depth recovery issues, social services. Uh, the social equilibrium, the mentality of the community getting restored, the confidence yeah, of the community, manufacturers and bankers, investment bankers and, 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 and uh, uh, legal authorities. To, to What can you do legally and what can you not? That can all be gamed out in, in an exercise if you have a recovery structure in place in advance, which I believe most jurisdictions do not and which I wish that was one of my big regrets in, in, in emergency management was that one of the two things I left undone in my mind was establishing a recovery structure that included public and private entities. And I've been urging people to do that ever since. And uh, maybe one day someone will. Yeah, I, I call recovery the bridge not yet crossed there. So yeah. uh, you, you mentioned uh, exercise and we both, you were at Seattle, I was King County and King County encompasses City of Seattle. We participated in what was called back then Top Off Two, and they're you know renamed. Of course, we got to rename everything to national level exercises uh, for that. It's is a, a big one, but as you mentioned uh, briefly earlier, it seemed like more of a demonstration than an exercise, um, yeah. where it's all, if you will, programmed out. Um, you've talked about this, these types of exercises, too much politics, too much showing off, and the risk of, they, no one wants to take the risk of um, looking bad because a mistake is made, type of thing. So what's your thoughts there? You alluded to something well, already. As I go back down memory lane with you on this, uh, I remember you and I pushed real hard for a recovery component. That's right. That's when we first realized these guys didn't know how to constructing a recovery component, uh, much to our chagrin. But in terms of the exercise itself, uh, we have to remember the top off, first of all, it said top officials. That's what that's the acronym for. And 
And for us, for you and me, and we actually achieved, achieved this recognition almost simultaneously in the same meeting where we sent one of us, and it might well have been you, said, hey, wait a minute, the top officials are the mayor, the county executive, and the governor. They said, oh, no, the top officials are the president, the vice president, the attorney general, and the new Department of Homeland Security officials. They're the ones that are the top. This is who this is about. And this is like six weeks out, and we're trying to figure out, wait a minute, we're, we're, you're our guest here. We need you. You're a valued guest, but you're the guest. The, the lead person is the mayor, the county executive, or to the extent that it affects the county executive and the, the governor. And that's how our charters work. And, and it was interesting to me because I, I think reeling after 9-11, a lot of things were done in panic to show the Congress and everyone that the administrations really knew what to do that they were in charge and that they were no less no, no less unprepared than, than the state and locals were. And they wanted to really show that we couldn't handle the disaster. And it was a dirty, dirty bomb scenario. It was a dirty bomb scenario. And, Radiation. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and one of the classic things was 15 minutes into the event. Now, Eric, I, I think you would agree with me that, that 15 minutes after something that's happening, the one thing you're trying to get is information you're assembling your team. You're trying to see what kind of expertise you need. And, and that in a four-day exercise probably should take a day to really look at all the factors involved. And let's just be kind to ourselves and say it would take us 24 hours to figure it out. 15 minutes in, I got a call from a, a unit that is based in Quantico saying, we're right outside the exercise zone. We can't understand why we haven't been called in. And I said, yeah. you're in Quantico and hung up. <laughs> because uh but they wanted to show their toys they said but yeah. cbs is right here with us we've got to do it now uh, no guys no that's not what we're here for so there was a, the double agenda was we were trying to find out how to handle such an event and what kind of the components of the problems we would have to deal with were, what those components were and they were trying to show all the goodies that they had to bring to bear on saving right. us from ourselves i guess yeah i i you know, this idea of the feds come in and um, whether demonstrate control, all that, I always say, okay, if the state and local organizations from the federal perspective are lab rats, what's in it for the lab rats other than carcinogenic drugs that you're going to inject this with? <laughs> but, you know, the, the other thing I came to learn, I've told a few exercise people this who are going to participate in national level exercise you're developing your major scenario, the event list, you're mapping this all out, how it's going to flow and what's going to be addressed. And one of the things that happens at the federal level is they don't get in. You're, you maybe have 18 months lead time to be working on this. They don't get in to see their top officials until like maybe a month, a couple of weeks before. And the top officials back in D.C. start changing things up and they're yeah. going to do something different. Yeah, you know, so all the planning goes out the window because yeah. we're just pawns on the chessboard to be moved around. Well, see, that's the that's the difficulty. That that and the other thing that we had was we had people bail at the last minute who were senior people in my EOC and moved themselves into the control group and put inexperienced people into the EOC slots, the, the police commander and the fire commander. And and therefore we had we had to train those people in three or four days. Uh, to because the, the people we were working with and for didn't want to 
stumble in front of the mayor. Um, I will give the mayor credit for this. I, I was surprised how well he and his team handled that. And when I had had kind of a rocky relationship with those guys over the years, that particular team, they did a great job during that exercise of, of deferring to their subject matter experts and actually asking good questions. And so that was, and, and I wanted to put that in there, not so much to fluff them, but to say, there are some good things that came out of that exercise that despite the goofiness that happened and despite the intrusion of a, uh, of a uh, virtual news network that was sort of a cross between Al Jazeera and Fox, um, they, uh, they, really, they really did a nice, the, the executives in, in our respective jurisdictions did a pretty nice job of coordinating and, and staying in each other's lane, but helping each other out. Uh, you know, the thing I remember, and we'll, we'll move off the top off too, is, you know, we had radiation and it was very difficult to find a health physicist who could speak English by that. I mean, <laughs> just explain that in common language and then come to a conclusion because they're, they're not used to having to make a decision. They're, you know, yeah. is it safe? Is it not safe? What should we do? Because we given shelter in place orders and can can we move people out and what would it take? And, and, you know, they just kind of talked around the topic. They wanted time in the lab to consider it. And we had real time decisions that we had to make. And that, that, that's something that I think, and if you look at just as a citizen watching the pandemic response, that there's still that tension between a, a quick snappy decision that everyone wants and what scientists are comfortable telling us about. Yeah. And, and we saw that play out in the pandemic also. Yeah. Yes, we did. And, and, and we, we saw it initially for years in the weather forecasting, for example, where yeah. we'd say, give us the worst case. I don't care if it doesn't happen. I just want to be ready if the worst case does happen. And it took a long time, but we finally did get the National Weather Service in this area to just level with us and say it could be this bad or it could dissipate. And then we would be prepared. And they did a, they've, they've been criticized when they've been wrong, and we've been thrilled to death when they've been wrong. Yeah. Things but so I, I have to say, in my 30 years, the weather service has gotten really a whole lot better. Yes, they have. I, I remember the inauguration day windstorm. That was back in 93. Uh, we, uh, everybody was caught flat-footed on the emergency mm -hmm. management side. I had a state patrol lieutenant burst into the state uh, facility and say, why aren't you guys activate all hell's breaking loose? Well, okay, you're the first intel. <laughs> yeah. Lonnie Bracken, Lieutenant Lonnie Bracken. Anyway, okay, yeah. so here's the thing that um, maybe people, uh, it's easy for us to talk about maybe um, that, but could we exercise with citizens directly? And uh, you had a comment that maybe doing this would help mend the trust deficit between government and our, you know, residents' population. Yes, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, for a long time, and I am about as technophobic as ever, as I've ever been, uh, but let me just say this, that, that there is a trust deficit in my mind between the government and a good share of the public. And, and some of that's our fault, some of it's not. But as government officials, 
we need to go directly, and emergency managers in particular, need to go around all the white noise that surrounds the, the political environment and go directly to citizens who can get online like you and I are right now and, and do an exercise. And, and let me just give you a quick summary of what that exercise might, the first simple building block exercise might be. It's cold, it's dark, it's uh, the power is out. Everyone you care about is home. How will you stay warm? How will you eat? It's pretty clearly dangerous to go out. So stuck in your house for an indeterminate time, how will you find out what's going on? How will you find out, uh, how will you uh, plan your next meal? How will you stay warm tonight? How will you, how will you, uh, do you have sufficient resources? Now, part of that would be then to turn the page and say, after they'd answered those questions, just run through a checklist that you give them. So they have to submit this. And then they say, okay, you realize your car radio might still work. You can pr probably get bulletins there. Uh, you could say, if you go through your pantry, you might have food that you can eat that may not be tasty, but will keep you alive. And in other words, give some building block kind of steps they can take. Afterwards say, what did you learn from this? What did we miss? And then have them feed it uh, back to us. Now, anybody could do any number of things there. I, I don't, I, I, I think, I don't call it a game, although some people I've talked to have said, well, this would be a great game to do. Uh, but to me, it, emergency management wasn't a game. And so I do think though, that however the techies wanted to approach it, they could pretty easily and cheaply set a series of scenarios uh, based on what we've already known could happen here and ask people, how would they take care of themselves and those around them? You know, you could expand it to say, do you have friends next door that are disabled or might need some assistance? How would you go about doing that? And then refer them always back to their local emergency management office for further information. And, and not only would you advertise your, that you're there and that you care, you'd be describing the limitations you might have initially as an emergency management group trying to respond, you'd be giving them instructions on what to do, but you'd also be saying, you've got a lot, maybe you have a lot of resources here and everyone does their individual grade and you don't, you can, you can make it anonymous so that there's, there's no uh, personal information taken care of. But I, I bet you could do that a lot cheaper than you do with a, ma a major exercise with a big firm flying in and, and, and presenting everything. And, and the emergency managers are the ones that need to know whether their messages are making sense yeah. or not and all that. I don't know. How do you think? How do you, what do you think, Eric? Uh, well, we're afraid of uh, empowering citizens. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's that word. I, there's a false expectation on the part of people, uh, just general residents, that uh, they'll be taken care of by someone somewhere type of thing. And, and, you know, when I do disaster preparedness presentations, I don't do as many as I used to, but uh, the title of my presentation is No One Is Coming to Help, which kind of goes to what you were just talking about. If no help is coming, what do I have here right now that I could use to sustain my family and that? And just so they get out and think, you, you know, you're responsible for your own level of preparedness. And, you know, people hear this uh, podcast around the country you know, it's three days, 72 hours. It's, it's the national standard here in Washington State, Oregon. 
it's two weeks is the message to be prepared because of our uh, come as you are, I call it earthquake hazard, which could knock out multiple states and there is no mutual aid and there's no one coming to help uh, immediately yeah. or for weeks even. So. You, you know, I, I agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, I, I just because we've told them two weeks doesn't mean that we our job is finished. That, that too often, I think emergency managers will say, well, we told them that two weeks, we made it very clear. Well, maybe the, maybe an exercise like I'm talking about, you could begin to tell people how they could do that. For example, how hard would it be to say, if you want to get a little bit more prepared, instead of buying two cans of tuna, buy six next time you're out. That's not expensive. Uh, if you If you want to be a little better prepared, maybe you should do another, take another step, but just building block steps to get right. more prepared. If you're three days prepared, there's nothing wrong with getting four or five days prepared, taking a deep breath, and then working on six, seven, and eight. It, it, you don't have to do it all at once. And if you remember when we were just starting, at least I was just starting out in 1992 or 93, the Red Cross put out this brilliant thing of 27 things you need to do to be prepared for emergency management. And people's eyes rolled into the back of their heads saying, I can never get all those things done on a weekend. Well, the answer is, and as, as you recall with my, my intrepid uh, colleague, Lou Ann Johnson that worked for me for years, came up with the notion, do, do one thing a month to get you better prepared and then do the next thing and, and celebrate each, right. each step. And I think that's still a wise and, um, appropriate way for us to approach citizens right good approach well listen we're about halfway through here jim so we're going to take a quick break uh for this message and then we'll be right back okay. uh with more uh conversation with jim mullina still has all his faculties and we'll learn more for jim right after this break you need a solution to the problem of tracking the people and the hours worked during a disaster response. Merit's mobile-enabled software is the solution that will ensure you have the documentation needed for your own staff and mutual aid resources that come to help respond to a disaster. Without documentation, you cannot get a FEMA reimbursement of personnel costs that you are entitled to. Fix the problem now. Visit www.merits.com slash disaster zone to get up and running today. And we are back and we're talking with Jim Mullen, emergency management uh, professional we introduced at the beginning of the podcast. Um, so here's another Piece, Jim. Do we, do we organize a broad-based recovery team? You talked about how important recovery is. Exercise it and prepare for the worst-case events, or should we just wait until something happens? Um, the latter seems to be our current strategy. You know, if everyone has a response plan, but how many have a recovery plan? As you noted, uh, maybe it's hen's teeth from that uh, perspective. So what could be done to get better prepared for the recovery phase. And having been at state, you, you see that more than being an individual jurisdiction because you have wildfires, flooding in other parts of the, the state, that type of thing. So you experience that and 
as the NEMA president, you've heard about it from your uh, compatriots there. Okay. Um, first of all, every jurisdiction in the country, whether you're in an earthquake territory like us or you're somewhere else, has a type of hazard that could bring the entire community and the region around it to its knees. Something could happen. Um, and a lot of those are known events, hurricanes, wildfires, perhaps uh, water shortages, whatever it might be. I mean, earthquakes, certainly. Um, it seems to me that knowing that and knowing that there are scenarios that exist already that have been tried and response exercises and all of that, uh, that, those would be good things for us to exercise. But who do we exercise with? Who does that? And I had recommended as I was leaving my job uh, that we develop in the state of Washington a, 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 a recovery framework. And my successor did make a, a valid effort to kind of push that through the state issues. It seems to me that what we needed to have was a, a public-private chairmanship of a social equilibrium restoring uh, group that is at least as robust as the response organization. You'd have social services, you'd have communications, you'd have commerce, you'd have a variety of different uh, boxes in the org chart, and you'd have representatives of those different entities. So you'd have to have union representatives there, you'd have to have, have uh, management uh, personnel there, senior management personnel, and and simply have that group in place so and have it deep enough so that if an extra, if a disaster occurred, everyone knew where we'd start. We had talked to the Katrina group from Mississippi, um, and during our Evergreen 2012 exercise, which was the forerunner for the Cascadia exercises, and we had a big recovery component. And they, we, we asked them what they did wrong. And they said, well, we did everything right. We just did it too late. Yeah. <laughs> the governor called both parties together and the, and the legislature and said, look, this is about Mississippi. He did the right thing. Uh, we need to do, we need to come together. Uh, I need to put someone in charge of this who can, has the respect of everybody. And he did all that. And they still, they still had trouble because they, what happens once the disaster occurs is everybody wants everything fixed all at once. And there's the planning is way behind the eight ball. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it seems to me that you, that whatever jurisdiction you're in, you ought to have a team of public private folks who meet enough to with, and have a little bit of staffing that allows them to look at the kinds of issues they might have to confront. If you need legal authority to do something that you don't have the authority to do right now, you ought to figure that out now so that you know once the declaration occurs, it's in the declaration language that, you know, we will suspend this or we will right. allow this. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I think can be practiced and exercised. And that could be a tabletop. It could, doesn't have to be a big deal, but you could certainly have the the head of a major corporation and the, the, the head of, 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 a, a, a government a government agency that's respected yeah. and then you have their assets would be the attorney general or the attorney general staff or 
at a local level, the corporate council or whoever is the city attorneys, but they could all be there and they could say, look, this is something that bothered me. We couldn't do this now. If, if, if we needed to, if we needed to restrict people getting yeah. in and out of areas, we can't do that now. Okay. Then how, what are we going to do? Think that through in advance. So that's ready when, when yeah. things happening. I always say what a plan provides you is to make as many decisions as possible in advance of the event. Yeah, and, and we actually designed an org chart and everything that were, that would be a good starting point, but the, you can yeah. do your own out there. But I would recommend doing something I, like that. What, what are you most concerned about? What kind of problems have you had or would you think you might have? How can you get that baked into your, your response and re, into re, your recovery piece? And, you know, I, I, I remember, I'm glad you mentioned the Mississippi. They actually, you know, everybody's trying to do a lot of things and not make any progress. They actually did a reset, started the whole recovery process over again and stepped back, took a, 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 a better master planning perspective, for lack of a better word, uh, to get things going. And I remember one of the things that they said, you know, it takes a long time to get progress being done. So one of the things they did is they planted a lot of trees in a very visible spaces so that people could see progress being made because it takes so long in the recovery process to get stuff going. And well, I'd say that's a pretty good message to be sending. And that's not a bad thing to say. How do we show people that things are happening um, when nothing appears to be happening? Well, you can do things like that. They're a little cosmetic, but they do remind people that there's, there's, there's hope that it's we're coming. But again, the, the biggest thing is to and for government to acknowledge we're not going to be there right away. We're going to be victims too. And we're going to be there as quick as we can. But you can help us by being ready. And we're showing you with our recovery organization that we're thinking ahead. Yeah. And um, one last note on we we think about New Orleans, we think about Superdome, all that, but Mississippi on the coast, they took it on the nose. That mm -hmm. was really, it was almost like a tsunami came in and wiped things out. So. Okay, so there just are so many potential threats, switching gears here, to our pretty vulnerable critical infrastructure. Yeah, I, I don't recall an exercise that looked at the consequences of an attack on one or more portions of our infrastructure. So what's holding us back. And, you know, one of the good things we exist today versus when we were local emergency managers, or even at state, is there is a regional cybersecurity infrastructure security agency, CISA, has regional offices, and they they could be a major play in this. So what's keeping us from getting to it? You know, I, I just I, I will speculate and I will stipulate that this is speculation because I haven't been that close to this part of it. But one of the things that has typified the interactions between the, the CISA and its predecessors uh, in government has been a reluctance to draw everyone, more people into the discussion uh, than they currently do in the sense that they tend to talk to themselves and not to others. They need to open up a little bit and bring even some of us technological um, dinosaur uh, and 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 yes, well, you can pick your word uh, <laughs> where, where I'm concerned. I'm, you can't hurt my feelings, but 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 you need to bring people in because I don't need to know how something happened 
or and I and I understand they can't prevent things from happening, but there are consequences that an emergency manager must deal with. And and we need to be in that discussion along with police and and along with other security personnel and with along with the technical people and they can lead it. But at some point, we've got emergency managers have to help clean the mess up and fix things. And that's where we need to be involved at the uh, highest levels and the lowest levels. I, I'll just give one anecdote. Years ago, when I was still the, the director of the state of Washington, it came up in, a, in an executive meeting that there was some reluctance on the part of the uh, the uh, internal, the technological security folks who had been briefed by the Department of Defense to let the adjutant general, who was the head of the military department and was my boss, into in on what they were talking about. Now that was quickly resolved, but that kind of reluctance to open up and share information, not sources and methods, but but information that we might need to know enough about so that we could respond effectively. I think that kind of, that may still exist in some quarters. I hope I'm wrong. And again, I will stipulate, I'm just speculating, uh, but uh, that I would think the more of us that are informed, the better off we are to be able to help. And one of those aspects, I would just say, there are single points of failure still out there that had broad-based ramifications uh, across many infrastructures. Yeah, and it's that type of thing that yeah, it's if it's a secret to everybody, <laughs> then and we don't know. There's no planning for uh, a potential you know failure from that perspective. And it goes back to what you're what you're saying. Um, okay, why don't we talk? Uh, I won't say this is the third rail of emergency management, but organizational location of emergency management at state local level at, under the executive branch. Uh, with a direct line to elected officials, or perhaps being in a department. Many states, uh, it actually has gone down in recent years. It used to be about half the states were aligned with their military departments, the National Guard, and, and that's lower than what it was before. Oregon is one here in the Northwest, just almost a year ago, moved uh, directly under the governor's office as a separate department. So uh, what... What have you to say about that, James? Well, I, I used to say when I worked for people like the police chief or the uh, adjutant general that it doesn't matter uh, where you are if you don't get the support and access that you need. And if you have the support and access you need, it doesn't matter where you are. In other words, the support and access is the key. But I will say this, there while there are some pitfalls to being directly under the executive, one of the advantages I would see, and I wish I'd been able to uh, enjoy is the ability to speak directly to the highest authority to have my budget issues raised, not necessarily adopted, but raised and have my resource needs um, addressed too often in the police department. We, and in the city of Seattle, the budget office would just say, well, you've got a 10% cut. We don't want to hear about new resources in, in, in the, uh, the state issue was the military department had lots of issues and remember we were at war so they had a lot of issues they there was no question that they they had high priorities so but my priorities might have shrunk in the wake of those 
But in terms of an emergency management function, those priorities were number one and, and were more, even more likely to be uh, holes that we would have to fill kind of just in a slapdash way. So I think, I think it, it's probably a good idea to be directly under the uh, governing authority and there are some pitfalls. For one thing, you can be highly politicized. Yeah. Uh, my, my colleagues, again, uh, are subject to administrative changes whenever a new governor comes in or a new uh, mayor comes in. Uh, that could be worked out through term of, term of service uh, that lasted at least six months after the new person came in. So they could have a smooth transition. The last thing most elected officials need is to have to replace their director of emergency management in the first three to six months for the simple reason that they don't know much yet. And they're trying to deal with a hundred other things. And that's a critical function that they should maintain. But I think, I think, so I think structurally you could do that, but ideally it's the best thing that is that you be under the governor's office where the accountability for public safety rests and that you're on a par with, um, those other public safety elements, uh, state patrol, military, right. and others, right. uh, and I think that works best. But I, but again, I, I as a, as a, uh, as an emergency manager under under uh, supervision, I, I found sometimes it was very difficult to um, be heard. Well, two two things. One, this may have happened before you went to the state because I think I worked this when I was at the state. We got funding for satellite trailers. They weren't actually vehicles, but they had satellite dishes. We're going to pre-position them around the state. We've got a West State, East, you know, Western Washington, Eastern Washington configuration here. And I can't remember how many it was, but it's going to cost a million bucks. And the military department had to take a cut. And the cut was those you know, satellite trailers that was going to support emergency management. So I, as an example of that knife can cut both ways. Well, you know, I'll just say this kind of uh, bitter, bitter party of one. Uh, oftentimes the cuts, we took the brunt of the cuts during the most crucial years uh, of the financial meltdown in 2008, 9, and 10, and 11, uh, emergency management took the brunt of that for the whole department because we had the most general fund. Uh, but when people were asked to list the achievements and accomplishments of the department, we often had six or seven out of 10 of that, that on that list that came out of our office. Emergency managers are almost too good at doing more with less. And, um, you know, that's sort of the nature of the beast. Also, we're pretty bad at the politics part of it as a group. Uh, we're not really good at self-promotion, um, but we ought to get a little better at that. And um, one way to do that is to is to be out there where we can we're free to lead in the in in the direction that we think needs to be we need to go. Yeah, uh, uh, this is the Eric Holdman quote. You, you reminded me of it that we we're getting so good about uh, doing more with less. Eventually, we'll be able to do everything with nothing. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, here, at, since we're on the politics side, this is uh, one. It wasn't one uh, I'd written down beforehand, but you can address this. You know, why move to King County, and it's an at-will position, meaning you know you serve at the pleasure. 
uh, people say, oh, man, that's oh, that's very risky. That's so political. So you were in one of those so political jobs, both at City Seattle and then at the state. What would you tell people who are reluctant to step up into that leadership type of position? You know, when I was an interim director and I had the security of a civil service job to fall back on, I incurred the wrath of the mayor by activating the emergency operations for a center. snowstorm. <laughs> in a snowstorm, you remember that? I and, remember and, that. And, How and, dare and, you? Yeah, and and I got yelled at by the mayor, and um, I yelled back because I was right. I had the chartered responsibility. He was out of town. His cabinet was out of town. He technically wasn't even the mayor at that moment. Yeah. And I activated the EOC because our good friend Steve Bailey asked me to, so he could coordinate fire and city light operations. And I activated it so that we could get people off the street so they didn't freeze to death. Yeah. I thought yeah. that'd be a bad look for the mayor, which is what I told him. Uh, he hung up on me. I thought I was gone. Six weeks later, I was the permanent director of emergency management. Uh, he never he never said I was right, but um, the letter said I was the director. I never failed after that to um, speak up. I think you always have to speak truth to the people above you because that's what they pay you for. And if you want to live with yourself, you can't hold something back when it's necessary for public safety. And, and there isn't a better job if you do it for four months or you do it for 12 years or 21 and a half years. It isn't a better job than, than emergency management as long as you do it right every day to the best of your ability. And heaven knows you're going to make mistakes, but you've got to acknowledge those too. Because even in an exercise to loop back to where we were, we want to make our mistakes there. And we always have to acknowledge what, that we could be better because that's how we get credibility internally. And that's how we can look in the mirror and smile once in a while. All right. Well, I'm thinking that could be the very end, but I, I got one last question. <laughs> and that okay. is, any final thoughts to anyone looking to make their organization or communities more disaster resilient? It's kind of a personal note at the end for the leaders, but anything else in general? I, I think you need to be less defensive, probably in general, about what you uh, cannot do and be very proactive in figuring out what you can do. And I think, for example, outreach to the community is particularly important now because we have a lot of stresses on our society and our institutions. And we need to make sure that in a disaster, we've done everything we can to make certain that people know these guys are trying to do their best right now. And I have, I'm, a, I'm part of that team. I'm, I'm an extension of that team and I'm going to do my best until they can reconstitute themselves and get out there. I think we have to realize the public is a critical part of our team and we can never, ever, ever forget that they're the, they're the component that, that we need to be able to rely on in, in, in between the time we, the event occurs and we can get to them and help them out. So that's, uh, don't stop reaching out, uh, not just for show, but for depth, in-depth discussion. And that's why the exercise can open up a dialogue. Uh, and that's why I believe that concept is something that we should all try. Okay. Uh, 
That sounds great, Jim. And I just want to say thank you to Jim Mullen for being the guest here on the Disaster Zone podcast. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it very much and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. It's, it really has been a fun conversation with someone I've known almost my entire emergency management career. And I, I've noticed that many young emergency managers are rediscovering things we learned decades ago. So maybe you picked up something new that is really old from some old goats in this podcast. So uh, lastly, a reminder to everyone, be safe. Think about what you can do today to become personally prepared for the next disaster and to protect children. If you like this Disaster Zone podcast, please share it with your professional and social media contacts. Thanks for listening and be safe. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.